0: not only to share in this ministry with you, but to be able to help Brandon to take a little bit of a break. Um, he he needs it. You have a wonderful pastor in Brandon. It's also good to know I was just with all of the elders of the bridge yesterday for an all-day retreat um, out the other side of Andover, and you've got a wonderful group of men there too. I said that last week, but can I just real quick, most of them I think are at the back, just uh, stand up if you're serving as an elder in this church. Daniel led uh, the, the service. Brian Steele right back here. Obviously, Josh Somsol, who's one of your staff members, but also one of your elders. And then where's Jeff? Oh, he's right here behind the camera. So um, these are your pastors too, the, the, the pastors who are keeping watch over your souls, and you have been blessed by God with them. Thank you for your service, men. If you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, it hit me today that I think Brandon's in the habit of putting the passage on the screen, and I've not done that, so I hope you have your Bibles with you, or use your phone if that's the case, but Romans chapter 6. And as we begin this morning, what I want you to do is imagine in your mind, if you would, imagine a road, um, a highway um, that stretches on as far as the eye can see. You got that picture in your mind of that road? That is the gospel road. It's the road that we travel on as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need to stay on that road. That's what I want to get across in this imagery right now. We need to stay on that road if we want to glorify God And if we want to arrive at our destination, our destination is disciples of Jesus Christ, which, as we said last week, was to be people um, who look like Jesus, fully devoted followers of him. But this road, this gospel road, is a very narrow road. And on either side of this high and narrow road, there are two very deep, ditches. The first ditch is the ditch of legalism on this side. The second ditch is the ditch of license. And falling into either of those ditches, which is really easy to do, because remember this is a high and a narrow road, falling into either one of those ditches is very dangerous. The ditch of legalism on this side, it says that being a Christian is all about following the rules. But the gospel, the gospel assumes that none of us are able to follow God's rules perfectly. As Daniel already said, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So thankfully, think about this, we are not saved by our works, we are saved by the works of God of another. We are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, which is the context for our passage this morning in Romans 6, it addresses this ditch of legalism. Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we got our act together, but while we were still sinners. That is the grace of the gospel, the gospel of road. So that's this ditch over here. The ditch we're going to talk about this morning is this ditch of license over here. And the ditch of license says, because of grace, it doesn't matter how you live at all. And Romans 6, our text for this morning, deals with this ditch of license. In Romans chapter 5, there towards the very end of the chapter, you'll notice Paul says in verse 20, where grace increased, where grace, uh, I lost my place here, where sin increased, excuse me, grace increased all the more. And so what this does is it raises a question in the minds of Paul's readers in Romans 6. Paul asks in verse 1, what then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? If where sin increased, grace increased all the more, shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that grace can continue to abound? In other words, the question is, is it okay to be indifferent to the moral character of our lives? I mean, after all, we're grace people, right? Isn't it okay to be indifferent to the moral character of our lives. And Paul says, in the strongest way that he knows how, no way, Jose. (laughs) By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So you're not in the book of Romans, so that's why I've kind of set the stage here. Romans 5 and 6. What they are trying to do is point us to the secure path of the gospel that avoids the ditch of legalism on the one hand, but also avoids the ditch of license on the other hand. For the Christian, friends, grace and godliness coexist. Both are found in our union with Christ, which is our topic for the morning. In fact, the grace of the gospel is the very thing that motivates the godliness that we are called to. Just for a moment, you don't need to turn there, just listen. I want to read from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which says it this way. For the grace of God has appeared, amen, bringing salvation for all people, amen. Listen to this training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, listen to this, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see how grace and godliness are not mutually exclusive things? They actually go together. That's the point. God's grace, as it works in us, if it is working in us, it will produce godliness. That's the topic. Romans 6. So would you please now stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Kind of already preached my sermon, but now I'm going to take another half an hour or so to do it again. (laughs) Like I said earlier, Paul makes it clear that those who are saved by grace will live lives of godliness. Those who are saved from the penalty of sin will also be saved from the power of sin. Every week I try and do a sermon in a sentence, and this week it's two sentences. So. It's a sermon in a sentences, But how does Paul motivate us to live holy and godly lives? How does he motivate us to no longer live under the power of sin? Well, let me say it this way. He doesn't just tell us what godliness looks like. He doesn't just tell us how to live lives of godliness. He begins actually with why we should want to live lives of godliness. Now, I said this last week. If you were here, you know this. I used to be in the business world before I was a pastor, and so I'm still a sucker for business books and for success literature, whatever you want to call it. How many of you have heard of the name uh, Simon Sinek, popular motivational speaker? Um, Go listen to his TED Talk uh, called... Begin with why, or start with why, I think is officially what it's called. But uh, He's not a believer, but I, I think you'll see how his argument is exactly the very thing that Paul is doing with his argument. But let me just apply it to business, a little brief business seminar here. Simon Sinek says that many average companies, and you don't want to be that, right, they don't begin with why. Instead, they begin with what? And with how. And so in his little primer called Start With Why, he asks us to evaluate a paper company's sales pitch that starts with what? Instead of starting with why. This is how it goes. We sell paper. We offer the highest quality product at the best possible price. Lower than any of our competitors. Want to buy some? That's a very rational pitch isn't it? It starts with what the company does, what it does, and ask, company, and ask customers to buy on the basis of features and benefits. Cynic says that this approach, it basically results in transactions, but as soon as the, fi- the, the buyer finds a better product or a better deal, guess what? They're gone. Relationships are not built on features and benefits. They don't inspire. So cynic then reframes the pitch by starting with why. Listen to the new pitch. What good is an idea if it can't be shared? Our company was founded to help spread ideas. The more ideas that are shared, the greater likelihood that ideas will have an impact on the world. There are many ways to share ideas. One is the written word that's where we come in we make paper for those words we make paper for big ideas wanna buy some you see the difference between the approaches this approach is not based off features and benefits those things matter but leading with why has a deeper a more emotional and ultimately a more lasting impact. The pitch is no longer about paper. Did you notice that? It's talking about who the company is and what they stand for, why they exist. Companies that, expi- that inspire, Cynic says. Companies that command trust and loyalty over the long haul are the ones that make us feel like we're accomplishing something more, something bigger than saving a buck that matters. B- business matters. It's one way that we as believers do good in the world and love our neighbors. But discipleship matters even more. And Paul too understands the power of why. So he doesn't start with the what. He doesn't start with the how of godliness. He starts with the why. Now, eventually he gets to the what and to the how. But Before he deals with that, he deals with the reasons fundamentally that will motivate us toward godliness. And so that's how I want to organize my sermon for the rest of the time today, is I want to start with the why. What are the reasons for godliness? And that's going to take up most of our time, because it's most important. And then I want to just very briefly deal with the what, like in a couple sentences, and the how, and a few Paragraphs. So let's begin with why. Paul gives three reasons why we should live godly lives. They're marked with, just so you're doing, if you're ever doing Bible study, one of the ways a passage is sometimes organized is around keywords. And that's how this one's organized. Um, these three reasons are marked by the keyword no. Look there in verse three. He says, Do you not know? And then he gives some info. Then in verse 6, he says, we know, and he gives some more. And then in verse 9, again, he says, we know. So that's the way the passage is organized, and so that's how my sermon will be organized. The first reason we must live godly lives is grounded in our baptism. Paul teaches us that our baptism is participation in Christ's death and resurrection. This comes out in verses 3 to 5. You can follow along with me. In our baptism, we identify with Christ. Um, The Bridge is an evangelical free church, and the EFCA Statement of Faith says that baptism visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. How does it do that? Well, for Baptists, which you guys are also Baptists here at the Bridge, which I love both, It expresses Christ's death through our immersion into the water. It also expresses Christ's burial through our submersion under the water. And it expresses Christ's resurrection through our immersion from the water. Do you see how baptism visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel in that sense? But baptism is not only an expression of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Our baptism, Paul says here, is also a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. As verse 5 says, through our baptism, we have been united. We participate with Him in a death like His. And we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. What this means is that when Christ was buried, we, in some mysterious way, that I can't, I can't understand with my mind, but in some mysterious way, we were buried with Him. And when Christ was raised, we were in some mysterious way raised up with Him. In our next two points, I'll say more about what this means. But for now, it's important to simply say this. Who we are, and if you've lost me in the explanation, get back with me now. Who we are is Christians, is completely bound up in the death, the resurrection, the burial of Jesus Christ. Who we are is inextricably tied to Him. We are in Him. We have union with Him. And that should utterly alter the way that we live now. That's the why behind the what of godliness and holiness. What happened in the past with Christ's death and resurrection? What will happen in the future with our own resurrection? Those two events, past and and future have a profound impact on what we should do now as we live our lives as Christians in the present, should change the way that we live today. Because of those past and those future events, we should, as Paul says, walk in the newness of life. Look again at verse 4, just so you don't have to take my word for it. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, that is live, in the newness of life. This is all very theoretical. This is the world um, that I live in, but maybe uh, to help give you a picture of what's going on here. A few weeks ago, my son Abe, third grade, was homesick from school and so I had the joy of being with him all day it drives me crazy to not have stuff to do um, <laughs> during the day but I'm with my son all day and he has some makeup homework to do in order to get ready and one of the assignments was from his astronomy class and so since I had nothing else to do I picked up this third grade astronomy textbook and I started reading through it chapter By chapter. By the way, those of you who are in the math and science field for your work, kudos to you. I mean, this third grade astronomy text was blowing my mind. I don't know that I understood half of the things that I read. I've got such a respect for those of you who are inclined towards math and science. But one of the things I learned, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is right, is that the gravitational pull of the Earth, which we're all experiencing right now, is somehow and in some way affected by the pull of the sun as well as the pull of the moon, but really even more than that, I mean, not more than that, but in addition to that, the pull of all of the planets. And like I said I don't know that I completely understand the physics of all of that, but it made me think about verse 4 that we're looking at. The godliness that we are called to now is in some way pulled on by the grace of the gospel in the past, in Christ's death and resurrection. And it is in some way pulled on by the future resurrection that we will have because we are in Christ. And those two things pull in such a way that they affect our lives in the presence. They don't just inform. They actually have a pull on our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. Baptism does not save us, but in some mysterious way, it unites us with Christ's death. And his resurrection. Our union with Christ comes a conversion. It comes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and we are born again of the Holy Spirit. But in the early church, the new life that we have in Christ, hear me, spiritually, our new life in Him spiritually, and our baptism and joining a church, they were all part of the same conversion package. A person's baptism is their initiation into the body of Christ, and it's a sign and a seal of their union with Christ. When we're baptized, we are saying we are united with Christ in a death like His, and we will be united in a resurrection like His as well. Friends, The point Paul is making here is that we can't experience participation with Christ. Not that we can't have it, but that we can't experience participation with Christ until we experience the waters of baptism. Not just in some metaphorical sense. He's actually talking about water baptism. And that baptism then becomes a stake in the ground. It becomes a line in the sand that says, I am now one with Christ in my union with Christ in His death, in His resurrection. It completely alters the way that I live my life now. As we look back on our baptism with Christ, it our, as we look on our, back on our baptism, it establishes our identity in Christ. As we look forward to our resurrection, it establishes our hope in Christ. And that all informs the way that we live in the present. So if you are a Christian here today, if you have repented of your sins, the world behind you, you've believed in the gospel, the cross before you, and with your life you say, no turning back. If that's who you are, If you've repented of your sins, and you've not been baptized, one of the applications here this morning is simply to be baptized. Talk with your elders, talk with Brandon about that as the next step for you. But those of you who have been baptized, I want to encourage you to think of yourselves as you walk out these doors as the baptized One who places your identity in all that baptism signifies with the way that you live your life. Walk in the newness of life. Your baptism is the first reason why. Behind the how and the what of godliness. Let's now look a little bit more briefly at the second one. Second reason why. Our old self was crucified with him so that we're no longer enslaved by sin. This comes out in verses 6 to 7. So the first point in baptism, it's dealing with death and resurrection. This point is kind of elaborating on the death and crucifixion part. The next point will elaborate on the resurrection part. But let's just reread verses 6 to 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free, emancipated from sin. Verses 3 to 5 draw out that our baptism is into Christ's death and resurrection. Again, 6 and 7 expand on death and resurrection uh, here. This is the point. Before Christ's death, sin was our slave master. We were enslaved and mastered by sin in every way. Now, does that mean that everything that you did was bad? Actually, yes. Because you see, even the good stuff that you did, it was all shot through with sin. It was all shot through with mixed motives, with mixed goals. There was nothing that you could do in your flesh to not serve Satan and to not serve sin. But through the death of Christ, we have been set free from that slave master. The chains have been broken. A few weeks ago, I had dinner with a new couple in our church, and we were talking through um, some of this stuff, and he had this great analogy. Maybe you've heard something like it before. But he said, before Christ died, we were imprisoned in sin. So just kind of imagine that over here. We are in prison to sin. The, you know, the, the warden, he locked the door to our prison cell. He threw away the key. There was nothing that we could do to get out of that cell of sin. We were enslaved to it. That's all that we could do. But when Christ died, what he did was he opened the door to that prison cell. He set us free. But here's the kicker. In this life, that door, it's still open. And we are free to go out, but we are also free to go back in. And isn't that how we live our lives a lot of times? Yeah, sometimes we come out, but sometimes we actually like to live under the slave master of sin and of Satan. Now, thank God that when Christ returns, this door, this prison door, it will be locked from the outside and we will no longer be able to get in to the dominion and to the reign and to the captivity of sin. We will be free from sin at last, finally and forever. But in this life, The door is still open. And the point that Paul is making here is that we are not slaves to sin any longer. We've been set free. So it doesn't make any sense to walk back into the cell. Why do you want to live like that? He says. Didn't you hate that life in sin? Haven't you been freed from it? Why do you want to live like that? He's making an appeal to our identity our identity is as freedmen and freed women and that should motivate us to live like it that's the second why behind the what and the how of godliness the third is like it our resurrection with christ it delivers us from the dominion of death look at 9 and 10 We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now look down at verse 14. Same language, but now it says sin will no longer have dominion over you. So no longer dominion over Christ, but we're in Christ. No longer, therefore, dominion over you. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, no longer dominion. That's really the point of this entire passage. This is the point that Paul is driving home repeatedly. Just to let me show you. It's what I like to do. Look at verse 6. We read that we're no longer slaves to sin. Verse 9, we're no longer dominated by death. Verse 12, sin shouldn't reign in our mortal bodies. We shouldn't obey its passions. Verse 13, we shouldn't fight for the old regime with these instruments, which are actually weapons of sin and death. Instead, we should fight for the new regime of righteousness and of life. That's kingdom language. And then again, verse 14, Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Do you see that repetition in this passage? That's the point that Paul is trying to drive home. Christ's death and his resurrection, they've not only dealt with the penalty of sin, they've not only gotten you out of your mess with God because you were guilty, they have also delivered you from the power of sin and death. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you've been transferred to a new kingdom. Your citizenship is in Christ's kingdom now. And friends, hear me on this. This is not just a possibility for you. If you are in Christ, this is a present reality for you. You have been delivered from the dominion of sin And death. That is true. Now it's time to live in to that truth because of your union with Christ. Why in the world would we want to continue to live under the dominion of sin and death? That's the question that Paul is driving at. But isn't that so often what we do? Now, friends, I want to go back to where I began. This passage, this call to godliness, doesn't have anything to do with legalism. Please stop, if you are a Christian in the church, calling whenever your pastors or other people disciple you or calling you to obey, please stop calling that legalism. That is not legalism. Legalism is saying in order to earn God's favor, you have to follow the rules. Godliness says because you already have God's favor, you are called to obey. The issue is one of lordship. Who's your lord? You're going to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan says. Who's your daddy? Is it sin and death? Or is it Jesus? Is it the slave master? Is it the tyrant? Or is it the one that loved you so much that he gave his only son and offered his lifeblood on your behalf? He loves you like a father you can't even imagine. Who do you want to serve as your Lord? That's the question of godliness. It's not one of legalism. It's one of lordship. In my opinion, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the best preacher of the 20th century. He served at Westminster Chapel in London for over 30 years. He does a whole book simply on an exposition of Romans 6. and He's got this great illustration of what I'm trying to explain here today. Drawing out the tension between the dominion of Satan and sin versus the dominion, the lordship of Christ. He asks us to imagine, again, another picture in your mind, two fields, two fields enclosed by a really high rock wall. Every person begins their life in this field, the field that is ruled by sin and Satan. And as Daniel alluded to earlier, we have no chance of scaling that wall There's nothing we can do to get out of that field. But God in his mercy, through Christ, has plucked us out of that field. And he has placed us over in this other field that is ruled by the benevolent God of the universe, that is ruled by Jesus Christ our Lord. A decisive change has taken place. Not just a possibility. It's not just that a gate has been opened. A decisive change has been Taken place. You live over here now. However, this is our experience in life. We can still over here hear the voice of Satan and of sin calling us back to that way of life. And out of long habit, Lloyd Jones says, we sometimes still obey that voice, even though we don't have to. I think that best captures the tension in Romans 6 and the tension of this real transformation that has taken place through our union with Christ and the very real continuing openness to sin that each of us battle every day of our lives. And so how do we live our lives now in light of the reality of, that we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Doug Moo, commentator, um, says, using this Martin Lloyd-Jones analogy, we need to just keep walking further and further away from that wall and further so that so that, that voice becomes fainter and fainter over the course of our lives. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I said I'm going to talk about why, I haven't wrapped that up yet. That's how. Let me wrap up this why section. Most of you here, probably not all of you, but I'm just looking around and most of you here, you know the right answers. You know everything I'm talking about. You know that you can't separate grace from godliness. You know you can't separate the hope that we have in the gospel from the holiness that we're called to. You know that you can't separate the penalty of sin from the power of sin. But I wonder, you know all of these things in your head, but I wonder if you've adequately considered why in your heart that you cannot continue to live under the power of sin. Paul starts with why, because he knows the what and the how of godliness won't motivate us. He knows that they won't actually help us to get on with godliness and to persevere in holiness. You can know the what, but you must be captivated by the why. You must be captivated by the fact that in your baptism, you have been united with Christ. You have died to sin. You've been raised to, to newness of life, when you remember your identity, when you remember who you are, that will change the way you live your life. So Paul says in verse 11, remember, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's the why. Let's now briefly consider the what and the how of godliness. Verse 12, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign In your mortal bodies to make you obey its passage of passion. So verse 12, there's that therefore. It's a transition to the next section. But he's basically just reiterating what he's already said. Sin's not your slave master anymore. Don't obey its tyranny. Don't do its bidding. But then in verse 13, he fleshes this out more specifically. He gives us the how. He tells us what not to do, First, and then he tells us what to do second. So he expresses the how negatively, then he expresses it positively. He says this, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So this is what it's saying. We live godly lives, or lives of godliness, not by serving unrighteousness, but by serving righteousness. Now when he talks about your members, he's not necessarily talking about your ears and your fingers, the, your arms, your legs, all those, those things would certainly apply, but he's got a much broader picture in mind. He's talking about all of your human faculties, all of your capacities, All of the ways that God has uniquely gifted and blessed you, your temperament, your personality, the way that you're wired, all of that, that's your members. He's saying, don't use all of that. All of the ways that God has put you together, all of the ways that God has blessed you and gifted you, don't use all of that to serve sin anymore. You're no longer a save to that. You don't work for sin and Satan anymore. you got a new job. Use your gifts and your talents and your faculties and your affections and your effort. Use all of that to serve Christ as weapons, instruments of righteousness. It's kind of like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying with everything that you are, And with everything that you've got, live lives of godliness. Every one of you here has been given certain gifts, certain abilities. You've been given certain spheres of influence, certain opportunities. When you are a prisoner to sin, with all of that, you serve sin and Satan. Paul is saying now, with all of that, serve the kingdom of God. Seek his kingdom in his righteousness first, and then all of the other will be added unto you. So at your work, at your school, in your neighborhood, in your extended family, don't use your time, don't use your talent, don't use your treasure, don't use your temple, your body, as Brandon would say, to serve selfish ambition and vain conceit Use your time, your talent, your treasure, the body of your temple. Use all of that to serve others and to serve Christ. Friends, this is what Paul says. Do not present your members to sin. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Stop trying to get a leg up on your coworkers and claw your way to the top. Serve them. Don't try and get ahead of them. Don't use your money for your own comfort. Be generous. Be sacrificial. Don't waste your life in front of a screen, indulging your eyes and your thumbs. Make every use of the opportunities before you, friends, for the days are short. Don't tear down the body of Christ with your words of hate. Build up the body, speaking the truth to one another in love. Don't overindulge your kids with stuff and with endless activities. Disciple them. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The days are short. Don't spread fear and share gossip. Spread hope and share the gospel. Don't cheat. Seek justice. Don't ignore the needy. Be compassionate. Don't present your members to sin, but present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And not because you're trying to earn God's favor, friends, but because you already have it through the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, baptized with Him in His death and in His resurrection, then you are called to walk in the newness of life. Let us pray. Father, I pray that You would enable that which You require. But not only that, that you would motivate what you require. We no longer serve a slave master. We serve a loving God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to believe that you are a loving Father and that you are worth the sacrifice that you call us to. Help us to do this with joy and with eagerness, not as a drudgery. I pray that we would have a greater sense of our identity in you. We are so tempted to place our identity in our work, which some of it comes from that, from our family. Some of it comes from that. But I pray that you would impress upon our minds the chief about who we are is who we are in Christ and that that would motivate us towards godly living for the sake of your glory and for the good of your people. We pray this in the name of Christ.